Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And Gary Trust here in Billboard's New York offices for the Billboard Sharpie podcast and joined by two guests on this week's episode. One of them, you know, from other Billboard podcasts, Keith Caulfield is joining us today. Keith, co-host of the Pop Shop podcast and Billboard's co-director of charts. Hello, Keith. Hello, Gary. Hello. We're, we're duetting on this week's podcast or, or trioing. With uh, another uh, partner of Billboard's, uh, our uh, our friend as well, Dave Bakula, Senior VP of Global Product Global Product Leadership and Industry Insights for Music. That's your title, Dave, it is, right? It is a mouthful. Yes, thank you, Gary. Of course, I couldn't get that right. But thank you, Dave, for uh, for for coming on here. It just means you're a very important person at Nielsen Music, right? The more words in your title, the more important you are. Sure. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dave, for for coming on, uh, Keith, as well, because you, uh, Keith, oversee the Billboard 200, and this is a pretty special date that this podcast is airing. It's May 25th, and 25 years ago, May 25th, 1991, was a historic week on the Billboard charts, uh, specifically on the Billboard 200 albums chart. That was the beginning of Nielsen SoundScan, now, now, uh, now Nielsen Music, on Billboard's album charts. Dave, uh, you were uh, you were working in retail at the time, right? So what do you remember sure. about uh, 25 years ago, Billboard charts suddenly changed from just being ranked reports to actual uh, point-of-sale scanned data by what was then Nielsen SoundScan? Yeah, and I think the, you know, anytime you do expand the panel uh, as broadly as it was expanded there, you're going to get more accuracy and more granularity to look at it than you've ever had before. And that was one of the things that we noticed right away was, you know, Gary, like you said, the the, the first charts, um, you know, reflected a really big change in country music, for example, a, a, an expansion of how important country music was seen. And and being able to look at that from a retail standpoint and, and give something, you know, of course, the retailers we had, I was working at, at the uh, corporate home for Sam Goody at the time, so we, of course, knew what we were selling. We knew what was going on in our stores. But to hold that relative to what was going on in the rest of the industry was a real eye-opener for us. And to be able to tell where our position was within the industry on particular titles uh, you know, was given an unprecedented level of granularity and of visibility. 
So obviously, uh, Dave, that was uh, a complete revolution in in data for the way music was being measured at that point. They're actually, and it, it, it's sort of surprising to hear that now when we have uh, access to data on just about every level of, of, of anything at this point in the information age, but th- there were actually some people who weren't quite ready for that change. Then, Is it some, some reporters at retail actually kind of liked having the control of, uh, of just reporting yeah. what may not have actually been true, but it gave them that level to say, uh, this is what's selling, even though it might not have been. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, a great saying that uh, a lot of us uh, share all the time in the music industry with respect to numbers, which is people lie, numbers don't. And that is kind of the way that it was, is, you know, there's always uh, a little bit of uh, a control and an agenda when you don't have real deep, hard numbers to rely upon. And I, and I think that's the thing that, you know, once you see what is actually going on out there, Rather than getting, you know, somebody who may have an agenda, somebody who may have a priority that isn't the same, uh, you know, nationally or even across a, a retail chain like like Sam Goody was at the time, you know, you may have somebody whose interests are a little bit different than just reporting the true whole numbers, um, you know, and that part was taken away. It, it's this you can't really interpret these numbers any differently than what they actually are which is this is what is selling and this is what consumers want to to buy in that case yeah i'm looking back at the first uh, chart that used uh, SoundScan data uh, the billboard the 200 then called top pop albums uh, dated may 25th 1991 it's actually michael bolton that uh, topped the first chart he went yeah. uh, eight to one with uh, time love and tenderness uh, new jack city soundtrack was number two uh, mariah carey's debut album Number three, um, you mentioned country before, Dave. Uh, the biggest uh, noticeable change way up top of the chart was uh, Garth Brooks going 16-4 to 4 with no fences. And I know Garth has told Billboard before. He's actually thanked Billboard and Nielsen for starting a sound scan at the time because he said it really legitimized his career. He might not have gotten to the levels he did if the numbers weren't there to prove how big country was and to really show that his albums re- uh, really were selling. And it also timed out really well for country. That was the early 90s country boom. So so that timing worked out great for country. Yeah, no question. It was one of those things that, I mean, again, working at retail, even at the time, you know, we we knew what we were selling and we knew what we were doing well. And to see that that much volume was coming up in country music was a little bit counterintuitive to what I think we all thought in retail as well. It's, it was just a more of a, a, a global thing. And the, the country consumers at that point were everywhere. I was just looking at the chart, like the year end charts from the first full year from 1992. And there were four country records in the top seven, you know, to have that kind of impact at the top of the charts for the year Country was just moving massive amounts of records at that time, and I don't think it would have got anywhere near the publicity and the the sort of the the notoriety that these artists got without your charts reflecting that accurately. So it's kind of interesting that uh, measurement of music in this case actually probably in some ways had an impact on the music that was being measured because as it showed that country was so big, it, it at the same time raised country's profile even more. And, and honestly, the music that was being made. You know, it it was the 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 start of a pretty big revolution in music and the way that music was being made. And when you see things that are successful, you get, you know, music artists that will emulate what is successful. And I don't have any doubt that it was a lasting impact for country through the years. 
We'll uh, talk about other trends uh, as we went through the 90s and, and what we've seen in uh, 25 years of of uh, music measurement uh, from Nielsen Music, uh, Nielsen SoundScan, also Nielsen uh, BDS on the radio side. But uh, Dave, I know, I know you were at Sam Goody at the time when all this started, yeah. but what do you know about the actual starting of SoundScan at the time and the technology of it? Was it that... We were getting to the early 90s, and, and technology really was changing. Had had this yeah. technology been in effect for a while? I, I know from on the Nielsen BDS side, the monitoring of radio, it, it goes back to um, sonar uh, measurements of uh, submarines and tracking enemies in, in, in yes. the Navy. Is that that's uh, how some of this yeah. uh, technology started? Instead of listening to the Russians, we decided to listen to our own radio stations, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, it was one of those things where the technology, I think, had finally gotten to the point where this was really possible and more broadly possible, you know, outside of some top secret Depar- Department of Defense um, technology. This was a technology that was growing very quickly. And, and look, as we go through the years, technology is going to be the constant source of what is driving information and and music and you know in many many ways and just about the same time it was actually earlier in 1990 was uh, the country airplay chart uh, started employing nielsen bds monitored radio station data so that was actually the first chart that had nielsen data instead of uh, ranked playlists uh, from radio stations the same way we mm-hmm. get uh, reports back then from uh, record companies uh, the country airplay chart uh, took on nielsen uh, data for that and then uh, six months after the billboard 200 uh, started uh, uh, f- uh, being fueled by Nielsen uh, sales data. The Billboard Hot 100 had its uh, biggest change in, in its, uh, th- at that point, 33-year history by uh, taking on uh, SoundScan sales and Nielsen BDS Airplay. So that was a big year for uh, for both Nielsen and Billboard charts, uh, becoming more relevant and, and just ushering in a whole new age of information that's, that's kept uh, 25 years uh, strong now. Yeah, and, and that's, look, that's the reason why the the brand of billboard has been so enduring is that as technology has changed and as consumption has changed that the charts just continue to change with it obviously we've gone through uh many many changes in the last 10 years but when you think about 25 years yeah it as long as as we keep changing with the times the definition of success is the billboard chart and that's because it has been current and relevant with the times and how how music is being consumed and keith caulfield has been a big part of that reason for success as well Oh, what kind of BS are you pulling out now? Good grief! Sorry, sorry. That 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 you can keep that in. This is this is my sense of humor. Uh, I'm not that big of a part of the success, Gary, but that's very kind. Of- Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
of you to say. Just making sure. Just making sure you're listening, Keith. I'm still here. I'm not dead. I swear. I'm. I'm still. I'm still. In the, I'm still in the room, just studying, waiting for you to pop a question on me that I don't know the answer to. That, that was the question, Akita. How important to the success are you? That that was your first question. Oh, stop. What's the actual question, <laughs> Dave? Let's uh, let's go back to Dave. The uh, the, the <laughs> let's name... go back to Dave. What? Yeah, to Dave. What? You have no questions for me. Why am I here? Not, not right now, Keith. We'll, we'll we'll get back to you too. But um, Dave, one of the things that's still interesting to me, you know, I've been at Billboard almost ten years, and I still don't know the the complete ins and outs to this. But uh, the original name was a Nielsen Soundscan. It's now all under Nielsen Music. But that name, Soundscan. Mm-hmm. On its most basic level, how is the sound scanned each week for uh, for sales? <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, it's done uh, with great partnership from a lot of data providers out there. Uh, there is a great interest in the aggregation of numbers, and to be able to get all of these uh, retailers and providers together and collaborate all their data into one place is is really a critical need for the industry. So. You know, to take in uh, reports that are coming in on a daily basis from, you know, the the biggest providers, the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles, Spotify, uh, Target, Walmart, Best Buy, Sam Goody at the time. You know, we've gone through uh, the days when, you know, Virgin and Warehouse and Borders and Circuit City were all in. Words that mean no yeah. thing to anyone listening to this show. Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, retailers Virgin? that were. Isn't that an airline? That were very, but I remember the time at Sam Goody when, you know, again, looking at uh, one thing that, that SoundScan enabled us to do was to be able to look at our market share of the national totals and to be able to look at our data and say, hey, look, we're, you know, we're 10, 11, 12% on a rap record, but we're 8, 9% on a rock record and we're four or five percent on a country record that obviously changes the way that you market your music and changes the way that you buy music how gary i want to get back to your actual question because i'm fascinated by this how is the data actually scanned and absorbed because what we always say the shorthand of how we describe this to a consumer is oh whenever you buy something at the cash register at target or you click that buy album button on itunes that that registers as a sale and I'm assuming it's because there is a a UPC code uh, associated with every album that is commercially released or streamed in America. And that UPC code, when a purchase is triggered, that UPC code is ultimately sent to Nielsen along with some other data associated yep. with it. Like, oh, this UPC code was purchased in this zip code yep. um, on this day, yep. perhaps. Yep. Um, does that arrive to you in like huge gigabyte files each yeah. week from like Walmarts or yep. something? Yep, and obviously that's changed a little bit. The the way that um, again with technology changing the way that data comes into us has changed throughout the years. But it is exactly that to have a unique identifier for a particular piece of product to say, I went to Apple and I bought the Drake record. Okay, that Drake record has an individual identifier a upc which gets sent to us with one quantity with exactly the where the person was 
who bought it lives. Um, same thing with a Walmart store. If I walk into a Walmart store and say, I want the new Chris Stapleton record, I go in and pick it up. They scan that. That UPC goes into their point of sale system or POS system and gets collaborated into a file that gets sent to us on a daily basis that says, here's how many of this particular product were sold in this particular store. So yes, the zip codes, the quantities, the identifiers, all of those things come through. And, and that's what gets aggregated together to get to the chart numbers. It's called sound scan because of the old-fashioned way that you should scan something at the register. Well, you still right. do, but yes. it was, you know, back in the 80s, the idea of having a uh, electronic cash register that would actually beep, beep, you know, <laughs> like a can of like, like you know. Like a grocery store. At sure. a grocery store. Right. Yeah. That was the idea. Like you were scanning something, yep. and it was a sound item that you were scanning. Um, actually, sound scan grew from the original name of the company, which was Sound Data, in 1987, and eventually that morphed into Sound Scan a couple of years later when it turned into a, a larger sort of music scanning-focused data operation. And back to you, Gary. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing uh, would be, I guess, that digital revolution in the early 2000s, uh, Dave, right? That's when yep. it was that kind of a time of Nielsen had to kind of rethink uh, everything and, 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 and realize, wow, now we've got internet and this is where all the sales are going to be. What, what kind of revolution yeah. was that internally? Well, again, it wasn't just a revolution for how to measure data, but it was a revolution in the music industry where it was, you know, we had largely gone from a world where the album was the purchase. That was really the only option that consumers had. Certainly there were some singles out there cassette singles and cd singles and maxis and things like that but for the most part the album was the the purchase uh vehicle for music consumers that changed pretty dramatically when itunes became as popular as it did where the digital track the song actually became the most relevant uh, uh purchase format out there and yeah that changed things dramatically not just in how we measure things which you know instead of measuring one album sale now all of a sudden you had 12 or 15 or 10 or whatever tracks associated with it but how we measure success and and you know what means success and and it definitely changed things from being just an album measurement uh format to being a music sales measurement format so yeah that was a pretty dramatic change but just on the technical side, right? That had to be uh, suddenly uh, years of, of being <laughs> certainly the uh, amount business. of data was. Yeah, uh, how, what was, kind of a change was, was that? Just for uh, how is Nielsen going to measure all this? Yeah, yeah I, I want to ask Dave a question that's piggybacking on that because we talk about UPC codes, which was a very uh, familiar concept because every everything that you purchased mm -hmm. has a UPC code back in the '80s that you would yep. scan, yep. so it would have a, a, a price attached to it, and people could do inventory. Uh, we track digital tracks and songs by a similar type of code, sure. which is called an ISRC code. Yep. I'm wondering when we started tracking, well, when Nielsen started tracking digital sales in 2003. Yeah. Um, did all songs have an ISRC code attached or was it suddenly like, oh, scramble, suddenly we have to invent this system to track these songs? Yeah, the good part was, you know, because it was coming through a retailer like Apple, you know, a, a massive multinational retailer that that is pretty good about having those types of codes i think there probably was a lot of scrambling from a metadata standpoint from everybody you know to be able to make sure that the right uh credit was being given to the right product so i think there probably was a lot of cleanup you know itunes really started in 2001 trying to get all of that stuff together um we started gathering data in 2013 uh, i'm sorry 2003 2004 and started putting it into charts at that point 
but yeah, there was a lot of backend scramble. I remember I was at a distribution company at the time and, and thinking about all the work that we had to go through to make sure that the data was being delivered properly. So then, yes, step one, getting the data delivered properly. Step two, getting that actually reported and being able to aggregate that all together. Uh, Gary, back to your point, we really went from a world of having, um, you know, basically where we had one transaction in the past, we would have 10 to 15 transactions um, in the digital age and how that expanded. And of course, now, you know, we can talk about where we are now with streaming and how fast that is expanding the number of transactions. But you'd look at, uh, you know, one album UPC, which could have, as I said, 10, 12, 15 individual ISRCs on that album that all also now need to be tracked. The amount of data and the expansion of storage, um, yeah, was, was pretty uh, crippling at the time. But uh, I think a pretty smooth and, and, um, accurate transition into that world where, you know, very quickly in the matter of about five or six years from that point forward, um, where we were tracking over a billion song sales in a year. Just a billion. Yeah, only a billion. As we've seen with these technology changes comes just an increased interest in music. And you would see, uh, you know, music stores popping up even as one was closing down the street, another one popping up, um, music being sold in different places. You know, we've got music being sold in places like Urban Outfitters. You can't walk into an Urban Outfitters without seeing a pretty big vinyl selection, for right. example. Or cassettes from Justin C- Bieber. Cassettes, exactly. They, they've got cassettes that, that there. That truly exists. I'm I, not making yes, that it up. does. You can buy and Purpose on cassette. You can't play it on anything, but you, you can, can buy you the can, cassette. If you, if you have a boombox, <laughs> they probably sell that next to the cassettes at Urban Yes, Outfitters. that's true. They sell a lot, of, a lot of record players there as well. So, yeah, the expansion into, you know, as we classify them, sort of non-traditional music accounts, the the music consumer, no question. I don't think anybody will doubt the the power of the music consumer. They've got more disposable income. They're a group that people want to market to. So the power of having music in a store for uh, you know mass merchant retailers, we saw again going back to the strength of country. We saw mass merchant retailers become much more important. The WalMarts of the world and the Targets of the world becoming a much more important piece. So yeah, the the partnerships have changed. The the level of reporting and the level of detail that we need from different types of reporters has certainly changed pretty dramatically since we started tracking this stuff. Hey, Gary, can I jump in? I want to ask a, a question yeah, sure. that may take Dave off guard. Um, is there a simple answer to how many physical retailers <laughs> report to Nielsen Music today? And and I say it may be complicated because you have an Urban Outfitters type yes. thing where they sell 20 titles. Yep. That doesn't compare to, in the olden days, a Musicland or Sam Goody or Warehouse, which was nothing but music, and there were thousands of titles. So is there a simple answer saying how many like brick-and-mortar existing things yeah. report? Not really? It's not, difficult? Not really. And it is a little bit difficult because you do get, you know, again, I'll go back to, sort of to your music example. music Macy's or Nordstrom. Exactly. Or Nordstrom is selling music. Whole Foods is selling music. Starbucks was selling music for a long time. Okay, if there's 20,000 Starbucks stores in the U.S., well, does yeah. that mean there's 20,000 music no. stores? Not necessarily, except for the two titles that well, they were carrying. How many actual music physical stores are left? Like, you know, that's like an Amoeba Records. Amoeba Records is a huge yeah. independent retailer in Los Angeles. 
Angeles and they sell nothing but music? Yeah, that, so, it's it's a good question because I think even, you know, I, I spoke with some people from FYE, from the Trans World Group, where, you know, they have obviously changed their stores pretty dramatically. They are a music store in the way that Sam Goody was a music right. store. But even at the end with Sam Goody, before Best Buy came in, you know, we were diversifying into branding. You know, how is music as a brand? Posters and T-shirts and instruments and all types of things that music fans Which want Amoeba to does acquire. Too, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little bit hard to say this is the number of music stores, particularly when you do get um, Hot Topic, Urban Outfitters, lifestyle accounts that are just as much about branding music as they are about selling music itself so so there's yeah, no number that we can associate yeah i don't really like have mostly have music stores of, yeah i i because I, I just don't know what else is being sold in those stores dodge and it's weed, really Dave. hard to dodge say and weed. i will but but because i mean because i think most people i think people would be hard-pressed to find a music store in their town or city yeah i mean yeah. Uh, los angeles and new york i think are kind of blessed with that still a little bit and that's why we had the digital and streaming revolution yes. because people turned to yes. their digital devices instead to be able to consume and enjoy music well and amazon changed that quite a lot as well you yeah. know being able to get physical product really wherever you were i mean i think of the small town in northern minnesota that i grew up in there wasn't really a record store. If I wanted to get an album, I would go to a record uh, to a music store that basically dealt in musical instruments and order it, and they would order it for me. And then two weeks later, I would come back and I would get my. I remember ordering Pink Floyd, The Wall. How quaint from them? Because yeah, because we didn't have a music store. So yes, being able to just go online now and get music, whether you want it physically or digitally, to be able to get it anywhere in the U.S. is is yeah, that was a revolution in music buying for sure. And for anyone listening who is thinking that we're just uh, talking really in the weeds about how the Billboard uh, 200 specifically has been put together over the years, and anyone thinking, uh, yeah, if I looked in the charts in the 60s, it was the Beatles, 70s, it, it, you know, it'd be Elton John, uh, you know, sure, in the 90s, it was going to be country and, and then grunge and then boy bands, but... It would be really interesting if SoundScan, I mean, it's so great that we have this 25-year history now, but if SoundScan had existed back in the days of Elvis and the Beatles, how cool would it be that we could compare the, the actual unit sales back then to what, what Adele is doing now versus what uh, the Beatles and, and Elvis were doing back then? If, if nothing else, it, it's great that at least it came along in the early 90s and we've at least got 25 years of history. But that's what we're talking about, why this really is important, because it, it gives you that granularity that we just never knew uh, in the 60s and 70s of what the actual sales totals were. We, we just don't know. There's no way to find that out. Yeah, and I think there's also probably, uh, you know, when you look at – Keith, you probably got as many questions as I did about Adele. Like when it sold 3.3 million is, records is in one week. Is it week the biggest ever? ever? Yeah. How does this compare to Michael Jackson's Bad or Thriller? Right. Oh, yep. And we, exactly. had, we had to go back and scroll through Billboard bound volumes from 1987. That was the year it came out. Trying to, and we estimated, we're like, well, according to these stories. Right. That would be the way to look back. You know. Yeah, Michael's record label allegedly shipped so many million in a span of two and a half weeks, mm -hmm. but it's all but it's all just a crapshoot. Yep. And that's that's why Nielsen is so amazing and that's why it's so amazing that we have this data and it it's you know, it's sucky that we didn't have it back in the day, but there was no way that you could have possibly had yeah. an authoritative or accurate count pre UPC code, pre scanning. Yeah, keep it to, and maybe this is going off topic a little bit, but I think one of the things that the charts do when when the charts became 
you know, as important as they are today, because certainly that's the, the billboard charts have always been important. Dave. I totally get it. But the way that the, the immediacy, that first week number, that drive to get that information out there and get that big first week number. Do you think that was as big in the days of even Michael Jackson going back to the 80, middle 80s? Was that first week number as critical then as it is now? No, I don't think so. I mean, we before Nielsen started giving us their data for the Billboard 200, there were only six albums that debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. Uh, th- the three of them, I believe, were in the 1980s. Wow. Michael Jackson's Bad, uh, Whitney Houston's second album, mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen's live album. And then in the 70s, uh, there was two Elton John albums, and then an album that I'm forgetting. It might have been a Stevie Wonder album. Um, Elton John was the first album to debut at number one. Right. And generally, uh, I think there was probably a lot of um, a lot of um, interesting things that probably came together to make those number one debuts happen. Yeah. Because the charts were very sort of interestingly put together based on people calling people and here's a fax. Yeah. And <laughs> here's a report of what sure. we're doing. And I think we would have seen a lot more number one debuts pre-SoundScan. Like, all those hot albums that were huge albums, they probably would have debuted at number one. I think it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense when you look at a chart and you see that Led Zeppelin's four debuts at number 10. Mm -hmm. When I'm like, how how was this not the top-selling album in the United States the first week it came out? So as we got more authoritative data and as the first week became very important and became very newsworthy... And the numbers didn't lie. Like, you know, you could say, I have the biggest sales. I beat so-and-so. You know, you you have an artist who can look at their number and say, I sold 300,000 copies. I know exactly how well I did. And I beat so-and-so six months ago. As opposed to, I'm just number one. Now I'm number one and I sold this many copies. So I think all those things combined, it was sort of the perfect storm to create a lot more interest in first week and the debut of a record as opposed to the gradual success of an album, which I think is also a negative in many ways because albums have uh, sometimes a shorter lifespan uh, to a degree because it's all about the first week or the first month as opposed to kind of a long gestating build towards, you know, a long success. And I've fallen into the rabbit hole. Back to you, Gary. Well, no, it, it's interesting, too, because it's the same thing we've said in, in you know, some of our uh, edit uh, coverage and, and some topics we kicked around that, you know, if we'd only known, you know, what were the most popular tracks on Thriller? I mean, we know that it had uh, the seven top tens and that Beat It uh, went to number one and Billie Jean. But if we had digital sales back then, if it was just, you know, that time, you know, this album in, in the digital era, if it had come up, we would have known that, you know, wow, maybe early on. On, uh, thriller was selling a lot of downloads maybe that would have been an earlier single and still you know instead of coming on later so it's if anything uh the way we see uh, song sales now individually like you were talking about before dave it really informs I, I know it informs we've heard from labels who look at uh streaming and look at song sales it helps them pick singles now back in the 80s it was just a guessing game or whatever the label or the artist wanted now it's a byproduct of having these scans is uh, instant research Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at you look at what uh, you know, what singles are popular and what is being released. Yeah. When an album comes out, the way that the consumer looks at it now, the music fan looks at it now is it's fair game. Here's here's 12 songs, let's say, on an album. 
which one do I gravitate towards? And, and I thought it was interesting to see the week that Beyonce's record came out, the single that everybody picked, that, that, that radio basically picked, was only about the ninth most streamed song off of that album, which I thought was pretty interesting. I, I think, you know, would they have picked a different single for radio had they had that information in advance? I don't know. We're in, we're in the uh, Wild West <laughs> now of how music is consumed and marketed and promoted um, because on the one hand you still have the uh, sort of quote-unquote old-fashioned way of doing things where you have a lead single from an album that will come out in three months and you know that's you know Megan Trainers know uh, Ariana Grande's Dangerous Woman um, you know there are billboards touting Ariana's album in Los Angeles it comes out on this day. There are pre-orders now. You know, order the album in advance. That's 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 the old-fashioned way of doing it. Then you have the new-fashioned way where you could be a Beyonce and drop an album, and there is no single yeah. right. at all. There is no official single. Two albums in a row for her. Yeah, just there's no <laughs> single. It's all right. Who needs radio? You'll figure um, it out. Uh, well, I will, you, I will, I will be... say, Keith, that's the one thing that can sort of uh, bring up uh, and make it clearer what that hit song is, because you get that radio audience, 150 million a week on, on say, the number one radio song in the country. That brings that reach and that brings that consensus that keeps that Wild Wild West from just being, here's a whole bunch of tracks, pick one, to radio and based on listener research saying, yeah, these really are the songs that people do want to hear on that level. So radio still brings that level to it. You're always defending radio, Gary. Of course, I always will defend radio. <laughs> but that's part that's of Nielsen. Fair. That's part of Nielsen as well. You guys uh, absolutely you still have all the Nielsen uh, modern. Let's just talk about that for a second, Dave, because it's yep. what about uh, 1,500 stations, yep. uh, terrestrial uh, uh, series in the XM. US, yeah. Yeah, in yeah, the we... U.S. and uh, uh, same kind of thing, right? With how with how you monitor all the uh, the, the sales reports. You've got uh, it's a little bit different because the the radio stations actually are monitored by monitors sure. in, in every city. Yeah, yeah, monitoring stations that basically listen to the radio and and detect the audio fingerprint for what is being played. Yeah, and then aggregating that, and then of course, uh, you know, formerly Arbitron and and uh, now part of the Nielsen family um, as as uh, Nielsen Audio is, you know, does a great job of actually sort of estimating the amount of audience that is listening to a station at any given time. So to be able to say yes, this got a, a play at radio is one thing, but then also to to be able to quantify that and say, you know what, a, a a radio play at drive time in New York is a lot different than a radio play at three in the morning in Duluth, Minnesota. So it's a lot different, you know, when you, when you put into context of exactly how many people are actually sort of hearing these songs. So yes, my song is getting played. It's getting added. It's ending up at, at, uh, at a level that I want in these particular markets, again, to break it down to station and format level and things like that, but also to get a good sense of exactly how many people the impressions, you know, this is impressing upon. Um, and again, part of what has gone into the Hot 100 formula. You know, how many people are hearing this, along with a lot of other things that have changed pretty dramatically over the years as well. Yeah, that's what you were saying or, or earlier when we were talking, uh, even before the uh, podcast, Dave, how in the you know, late 80s or early 90s, pre-Nielsen, someone could say, uh, my song is number four uh, at this radio station, but it yep. didn't really mean anything because you couldn't put numbers. You didn't know what that meant, uh, 500,000 people in New York uh, hearing it at some point. So it, it, it put context to everything. Yeah, yeah, sure. If if the top three are getting 90% of the plays, being number four isn't that much better than being number 44. So. Yeah, to to really have a sense, you know, last couple of weeks and, and, and a week like Adele, 
you know, it's it's one thing to say I was the number two record behind Adele, but it's another thing to say, oh, and by the way, I was 3.2 million album sales behind Adele for number two. So Which we're still number two. <laughs> I'm still number two. Still a marketing hook. I better find your loving. I better find your heart. I better find your loving. I better find your heart. I better find your loving. I better find your heart. I better find your You look at some of the uh some of the like shares of um, the top 200 I by the different just say formats. Share. I'm like, share. Oh, you look at share, for example. Look at share, for example. Look at share. Look at up. But the shares of some of the, um, you know, the, the consumption numbers uh, on the top 200, you know, what share is coming from albums, what share is coming from songs, what share is coming from streams. And you look down the charts and it's, you know, there, it's, there's, there's just a wide variety of, you know, these are things that got there because they are album sellers. Country, for example, still sells a lot of albums. Rock still sells a lot of albums. The pop songs tend to sell a lot of songs. There's a lot of sales going on of songs there, but pop is largely being driven by song sales. Streaming is driving some of these R&B and, and hip-hop artists that are that are very successful now. Streaming is driving a lot of that consumption as well. Certainly first week is still driven by albums. That is kind of the purchase in the first week. But Unless, yeah, well, I mean, even, even with the Drake album, it was still a yeah. humongous sales number, even yep. though it was exclusive to just iTunes. Yeah. But as those things change and as they age, I mean, you can look at something like Adele, not 25, but 21, which has been on the chart for, I think, 273 weeks at this point. And, you know, and continues to be near the top of the charts uh, in a lot of weeks. That is still a very album centric type of consumer and is selling a lot of albums. But, you know, you don't have to go much. You know, let's look at. Not necessarily at Drake's latest album, which is still very new, but some of Drake's older albums, um, you know, they can be 60, 70 percent coming from streaming at this point as they get as they age a little bit. And it does keep albums relevant and artists relevant for longer periods because streaming just continues to go on and on and on forever. One of the uh, stats you sent over, uh, Dave, because uh, Nielsen does all these reports all the time. We, we'll have you back here on the podcast and, and just talk about other trends that uh, Nielsen's sure. always uh, coming up with. But one one stat that stood out to me was uh, streaming is up 62% in 2016 over the same period in 2015 and up 203% in just two years. And it's now the largest portion of the business. So streaming yeah. has just come along that quickly and become that big. So yes, when you do see the growth in on-demand streaming, you do, you know, you one, you get a better sense than ever of what consumers, music fans really want to hear. You know, they're going in and choosing the songs that they want to hear and and playing them on demand. And, you know, that's where I think you do get a really uh, a different sense of what is popular, what is successful, what does success mean? Having all of these streams and having that huge growth that we're seeing in streams you know, certainly the music business is changing and the, the monetization of the business is changing. And as things like uh, the industry and A&R and all of these different elements of music adapt, so adapt the charts, you know, and the charts adapt to reflect that same level of success, the way that releases are being handled now. Overall, Dave, uh, this is the latest report that Nielsen put out, uh, we're seeing how streaming's up, uh, sales are down, but you say uh, the conclusion was uh, industry in transition, but still healthy. That's the overall yeah. conclusion for where we are uh, right now? Yeah, I think so. And I think that you know people's access to music 
is greater than it's ever been before. You, you, to be able to really have just about any song that you want at any time, you know, depending on your technology, your device, and the way that you choose to to listen to music, uh, the the availability of music is greater than ever, and the consumption of music is greater than ever. Um, fans just continue to have different ways to get to their favorite music. And that's a good thing, I think, for everybody. Fragmentation uh, can be a challenge in some ways, but fragmentation for the consumer is great. However you want to do it, here it is. Um, so, yeah, I think the music business as a whole is healthy. Um, I think there are a lot of things that we need to consider uh, with how it's being monetized and how um, artists are being compensated and things like that. That's obviously for a much broader conversation. But, uh, you know, I think I think we'll manage to figure all these things out. I think fans will continue to have access to music and i think the uh, the industry will remain healthy And uh, top albums of the past 25 years in the U.S. Uh, by sales, according to SoundScan. I'll, I'll just go five to one, and uh, you, you guys make make your your insightful comments afterwards. But n- number five, Millennium Backstreet Boys, 12.3 million. Number four, The Beatles, one compilation, uh, 12.7 million. Number three, Atlantis, Jagged Little Pill, 15.1 million. Number two, Shania Twain, Come On Over, 15.6 million. And the number one selling album of the past 25 years, according to SoundScan, here on the 25th anniversary today of SoundScan data, uh, informing the Billboard 200, Metallica's Metallica, number one, 16.3 million. Probably surprising some people who had not known that Metallica has the top selling album in the U.S. of the last 25 years. For people that just think this this uh, this top 10 or this top 5 is just full of old albums, uh, Adele's 21 is the number 10 biggest-selling album of the last 25 years right? with um, 11.6 million copies sold. And that's, you know, just in a handful of years. So uh, there 20, is still hope. Yeah, yeah and tw- 25 I think is other, number 35 at this point. It's only been out a few months. Yeah. 25 is already the 35th biggest album of the last 25 years. Right, yeah. And you look at some of these and, and you see that, you know, the theme that you have here is that none of these albums were really – the 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 biggest of the big you know with the exception of Adele which you know has obviously done very well with 25 but even 21 you didn't have these gigantic first weeks and then it just disappeared these were real albums that were selling steadily for a very long time I mean I, I remember Alanis Morissette again when I was working back at at Musicland when Alanis Morissette was was big it was like every single week the record just kept going up and up and up and it got more exposure and more singles came out um, you know, a little bit like like a lot of the other things that we see on here, the Shania Twain. These just these records just sell well forever, and it's not like they were here one day in release week, and this first week number was all that they got. Um, you know, even Adele, which sold the the three point three million records in one week, still selling very strong every single week. It's not that that the fans came out and got it, and then everybody else went away. Which was the worry, I think, to some. It's like Absolutely, going to have a huge right. first week or first like oh Christmas. It'll do well through Christmas, and then right. the bottom drops out. Nope, yeah. nope, she's doing just but, fine. But like you said, 21 is the 10th best-selling album of all time. 21 did, what, 380-something thousand first mm-hmm. week? So that wasn't like one of those records that came out, and we went, oh, my God, there's a, it's a brand-new record. Adele 21 just blew the doors off of first week. It wasn't like that, but that record, I mean, that record had its biggest sales week 
it, when it was almost a year old, when she won all of the Grammys, it got up to 800000 in a week. So she's never had a week on 21 that was over a million, no. yet just continued to sell strong forever. I think the, the common thread, in fact, uh, uh, all of the, well, I'm trying to remember if the Beatles one sold more than a million in a week. It did in that one holiday week, I think. Not yeah, release of, week, but it was a holiday week. Of the of the top five albums, only two of them, uh, Millennium by Backstreet yeah. Boys and Beatles one, ever did a million in a single week. Metallica, Come On Over, and Jagged Little Pill never did a million in a week. I mean, they were all like very hot sellers for a long time. But yeah. I think the the common thread across all of them is that they each have a very sort of specific set of circumstances that really, as Dave said, made them. Uh, made the albums have a very long life on the charts. And these albums all reached people that they probably never thought they were going to reach in the first place. Like they became hallmark, landmark albums that reached beyond their core. There are people, you know, that are well beyond Metallica's core base that own Metallica's Metallica. There are people that have Shania Twain's Come On Over who are probably not country fans, but just... They heard seven singles from the album and felt, I have to have this. These are, these are those albums that when you find that person who isn't really into music all that much, but they have a handful of albums somewhere stashed in their house, these are going to be some of those albums that they have. Like those 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 grandmas that you find that only own 20 albums in their catalog, yeah. Yeah. some of these will be some of those. Yeah. That's the, yeah. These are those kinds of albums. And some of the other elements too. I mean, to get that massive to get that successful you do have to appeal to everybody whether they're music fans or not and you do get albums like soundtrack albums that i'm thinking of that continue to do very well you've got um you've got the bodyguard soundtrack is the sixth best selling of all time you've got titanic which is the 21st best selling of all time and how that appeals how the movie tie-in sort of appeals to the popularity of it as well which goes beyond the music and brings it something much bigger than that when it's attached to film and every time i see titanic i feel like i need to go buy the record again so it's things like that that you know these these records get to the top not just by appealing to a small group of music fans on a single format at radio it's the broad appeal to the masses that really drives these things to the top yeah, for jobs we have that are really uh, all about numbers and adding up numbers, it it always just comes back to human behavior and, and how it always just comes down to how we enjoy music, how we experience it. So yes. the, the, the numbers, we, we put them together, but then, then the fun part is just talking about what they mean. Yeah, yeah, no question. I think, you know, I, I've said it a million times and don't tell my boss, but I would do this for free if I could. You know, I, this would be what I would be doing if I didn't have this for a job. I'd be sitting around talking about records and behavior and and artists and and how it's being consumed and things like that this is just a great uh a topic to be able to be blessed with being in this business and you're right it, it does come down to not just well how did that particular record sell but it's human behavior it's psychology it's how do you market to these consumers and and brands come to us all the time and ask about things like that like oh we saw this artist moving up the charts we want to get involved with this artist because we think their fans are the kind of people we want to reach and that is driven by what shows up on the billboard charts well dave this has really been enlightening uh, i'm sure for chart fans for, for keith and me as well because we're finding out uh, ins and outs of nielsen and how how the charts uh, happen every week so uh, you guys uh, do this all the time you're always welcome back uh, on, on the podcast dave to talk about more uh, trends there's so many more we could uh, get into so uh, you're welcome back anytime thank you gary appreciate that keith you're welcome back on the podcast anytime as well oh thanks gary <laughs> Thank you both for coming on the Charpy Podcast.
Thank you, Gary. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.